Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. I have been in therapy for so long and known people in therapy for so long that I sometimes forget it can be a revelation to some people. Like it was for our next guest, Lori Gottlieb. Gottlieb had faith in therapy before she began it because she is a therapist. But therapy became a true revelation to her when she sat on the other side of the couch. Lori is a psychotherapist and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, about her journey from the chair to the couch and back to the chair. It is being adapted into a television series by the creators of the Emmy and Golden Globe award-winning series, The Americans. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist column, and her new iHeart podcast, Dear Therapists, is produced by Katie Couric for iHeart. You may wonder... Why exactly she's on the show? Because we don't talk about politics. I don't think we come even close. So what's the difference that needs to be bridged here? What's the relationship that needs to be changed? I think it's the relationship to ourselves. We do talk a lot about learning to bridge the difference between the stories we tell ourselves and what the truth is, or at least something closer to the truth. Because it's only when we see ourselves clearly that we can really start to see others. Coming right up, Lori Gottlieb. Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So I asked you to bring a reading, which you said you don't usually do. But would you mind just reading a short excerpt from your book for us? Absolutely. Therapy is hard work and not just for the therapist. That's because the responsibility for change lies squarely with the patient. If you expect an hour of sympathetic head nodding, you've come to the wrong place. Therapists will be supportive, but our support is for your growth, not for your low opinion of your partner. Our role is to understand your perspective, but not necessarily to endorse it. In therapy, you'll be asked to be both accountable and vulnerable. Rather than steering people straight to the heart of the problem, we nudge them to arrive there on their own because the most powerful truths, the ones that people take most seriously, are those that they come to little by little on their own. Implicit in the therapeutic contract is the patient's willingness to tolerate discomfort because some discomfort is unavoidable for the process to be effective. Or as my colleague said, I don't do you-go-girl therapy. I love that you chose that as a reading because it segues so nicely into... What I think is one of the most, well, sorry. I love that you chose that as a reading because it allows me to ask the next question really easily, which is, but Lori, you also wrote this book from the perspective of a patient or a client, right? Right. I did. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting to me that you chose to read a section about being the therapist. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, (laughs) it's interesting because I think that what you see in the book, so I follow four different patients through their own struggles and growth. And I also follow a fifth patient who is me as I go through my own therapy. And I am no different from those four people that I follow. And I think that that's what's important. Everything I just read to you applies as much to me as it does to anybody that I would see in my own therapy office. I, it's one of the wonderful things about the book as someone who's been on, you know, the receiving end. Actually, one of the things I loved about your is is I have in the past thought of myself as being on the receiving end. But I think your book really helped me understand that there is a two-way street between the therapist and the client. Oh, very much so. And I think people 
don't really consider that when they're in therapy. They think they're coming into therapy and they're going to download the problems of the week and then they're going to leave as if that therapy session exists in amber. And it doesn't. There's a very vibrant, rich uh, relationship going on between the therapist and the client. You had a fairly long journey to becoming a therapist, it seems like. it's. It was a... I'm trying to count how many different career paths you were on. Maybe third? Yeah. Fourth? I, I've lost count. I mean, I was either <laughs> very versatile or very confused, it seemed like. Very adventurous, I'll say. Yeah. But you know what? In retrospect, I think it all makes sense, as things sometimes do in retrospect, that Everything that I did was about story and the human condition. And so when I graduated from college, I worked in film, and then I later moved over to NBC, and I did um, TV development, and I was working on um, two shows that premiered the year that I got there. It was a very good year at NBC. Friends premiered, and so did ER. And I got to work on ER where we had a consultant who was there to make sure he was an MD and he was there to make sure that um, all of the trauma-based scenes were choreographed accurately and, um, you know, just to make sure that we were really reflecting a real emergency room. And I loved hanging out in the real emergency room with him because that's where, you know, that's where things happen. That's where when you go to an ER, it's not because you expected to be there. So that those were inflection points in people's lives. And it was through that experience that he said to me at one point, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. Maybe you should go to medical school. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, but I did. And I went to medical school, and when I was in medical school, I was up at Stanford where um, it was kind of dot-com central. And, um, you know, a lot of my professors were saying to me, there's this new thing called managed care, and you're not going to be able to interact with patients in the way that, that you want to because I had this fantasy, again, of story in the human condition of really guiding people throughout their lives. And so I left to become a journalist, and ultimately um, I became a therapist where I feel like all of these things were about telling people stories, helping people to change their stories. I feel like as a therapist, I'm helping people to edit the faulty narratives that they come in with. So I feel like even though it looked like the most circuitous route imaginable to becoming a therapist, that it all makes sense. Well, if you tell it that way, it does, right? That narrative totally works. But of course, like we're saying, part of this book is about you entering therapy, which means you must have realized at some point you were telling yourself a faulty narrative or that you needed to figure out what your narrative was. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my my version of the story, and I purposely say my version of the story when I first came in, um, to me was was the accurate version, the only version, the complete version. And I think we all think that when we first come into therapy or just when we're talking to our friends and we're telling a story. And I think what keeps us stuck is that we often don't consider what 
other versions of the story exist out there. So even as a therapist, you went into therapy pretty sure about what your story was, or did you already know that you needed to doubt your story? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I wish I were, I were that um, you know aware that my story had tons of holes in it. So you thought you were the one patient that was going to have just like a story that like totally made sense from beginning to end and wasn't going to change. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can know better on an intellectual <laughs> level, but I think that when it's your life, you know, I I think human beings are ridiculous. I should just say that right away. And I, I mean that in the sense of we all are and, and that we need to have more compassion for the ridiculousness of the human condition. So many times I think we take ourselves too seriously, that we we don't leave room for the fact that we are very subjective beings. We are very fallible um, we often process information in a way that validates what we want the story to be, even though we think we're being very objective. And what was the story you were telling yourself that you thought you'd be able to keep all throughout your therapeutic journey? The story I was telling myself was that the person that I was supposed to marry announced to me one night that he had decided that he did not want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. That kid um, at the time was my eight-year-old who had not been hiding in a closet the whole time we were dating. <laughs> so my version of the story was what my friend my friend said, well, he's a sociopath. Who does that? Um, and I did not disagree. But... Um, but I think that my version of a story was was very much something is wrong with him. I dodged a bullet. Um, you know, it was a blessing in disguise. Every cliche you could think of, because that's what my friends were saying. And and I truly wanted to believe that. I didn't want to believe that I had any role in whatever led up to that revelation that night. And when I got to my therapist, I was sure that he was going to validate my story, I would feel better about the whole thing. Because it's so it's so, it's so delicious when someone validates your story. And it, it feels really good in the short term, but it doesn't serve you in the long term. And the first thing that happened when I went to therapy was I was going on and on about the story and what clearly was wrong with the, the boyfriend. And I said, you know, and now I've wasted all this time and half my life is over. And my therapist glommed onto that phrase, half my life is over. And that, as it turned out, was what I was really there to talk about in therapy, but I just didn't know it yet. One of the things that fascinates me about your story is that as a therapist, you know, right, that when a person comes in and tells their story, like how many times have you simply validated a story for someone? In the therapy room? Yeah, I, I won't necessarily validate their story. I'll validate the way that they're feeling because right. you feel how you feel. But I won't necessarily say, yeah, that's that's horrible that that person did that. Right. So if someone came into your office and told you the story that you told about your boyfriend, you would know not to like simply be like, yeah, that guy sucks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but you know what? As a therapist, I have the vantage point of not living inside that person's life. I think that when you zoom out from your own life, you can see so much more. You can see the macro version. But I think we're all so close to ourselves, obviously. And so it's really hard to have that perspective, even if you intellectually know better. Have you found that people are really surprised that a therapist has a therapist? Yes, I am surprised by the fact that people are surprised by that. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. Would you want somebody 
to be helping you if they weren't didn't have a place to go to talk about their own things. Um, you know, I think it's almost like people have unrealistic expectations about a therapist. On the one hand, they want them to be very human because without our humanity, we can't help another person. But they don't want them to be so human that maybe they have their own problems that they're still working through. And I'm really fascinated by the whole the two-way street part of this too, that you learn from your therapist and you learn from your patients, right, about how to do be better at doing both. That's right. I feel like we're all mirrors, reflecting mirrors, reflecting mirrors, which means that when I'm doing therapy, I'm not I'm not um, using their therapy time to work out my own issues. Right. But it certainly makes me confront things later on that maybe I wouldn't have looked at so closely. Like when I in the book, I'm seeing this woman who's in her early 30s and she's a newlywed and she comes back from her honeymoon and finds out she has cancer. And later it turns out to be terminal cancer. And she really forced me to confront these questions that I had about um, you know, what does it mean that I was having my own health issues and, and I wasn't facing them? And what does it mean that half my life is over? And how do we live our lives more intentionally knowing that life has a 100% mortality rate and that doesn't mean for other people? Um, so she really made me look death in the eye in a way that ultimately was incredibly important for me at that point in my life. The story of how you came to write this book is kind of a, a story in itself. It's in the book, right? This isn't the book you set out to write in your life. No, no. I didn't wake up one day and said, I'm going to write a book about myself in therapy. <laughs> um, that would be the last thing I think I would ever come up with. Um, it came about because I had written a cover story for The Atlantic called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. And the subtitle was Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness May Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. And that piece spread like wildfire. It went viral. And publishers wanted me to write that book for, I should say, only because I turned it down, I can say this, for an obscene amount of money. And how obscene, like double X, triple X, just obscene. I can't even get myself to say it. <laughs> and I say that only because this is why everybody thought I was something, you know, that I had had a stroke or something. You know, how could you turn that down? You're a single parent. You're you know, how do you turn that down? And there was I couldn't articulate why I was turning it down other than to say that I didn't feel like it would be meaningful to the people that I would be writing it for. And I didn't think it would be meaningful to me. I felt like I said what I wanted to say in the piece. I thought the piece was really valuable in a lot of ways, but I didn't feel like eking a book out of it for, you know, monetary reasons um, felt good to me. And I think that I was also a new therapist at the time. And I really feel like once you become a therapist, you're very oriented toward the core, toward meaning, toward purpose. And there was something that felt disingenuous about just like jumping on this commercial helicopter parenting bandwagon and writing this book for a lot of money. And so I said no. And I said, I'm really interested in what's going on with the adults. At the time, The New Yorker wrote a piece and they said, um, you know, another overparenting book would just be cruel. <laughs> and, I, and I agreed with that. Um, you know, people had done really good jobs of writing those books. And why did I need to put that book out there? I really wanted the adults to say, what is going on with us? Because that's what I was seeing in the therapy room. 
And so publisher said, oh, you want to write a happiness book? And I thought, well, no, I don't want to write a happiness book, but I'll make it what I want to make it. And of course, they were not um, as interested in this book and they did not offer me, um, you know, the kind of money that, that would sway me in any direction. It was like PG-13 money. Really? It was it was like no money, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, gee, OK. Right, but I was like, this will be a book that's important to me. So and important to other people and it will help people. And I want to write this book. But the more that I realized how I would have to write that book and and that it would be, you know, I think once you become a therapist, you start to look at happiness and what people are coming in for. And I think that happiness as a byproduct of living your life a certain way is what we all want. But happiness as the end goal, as the goal in and of itself, is a recipe for disaster. And I just, I couldn't get myself to write this. In fact, I started calling it the miserable depression-inducing happiness book because I was so miserable writing it. I was getting depressed writing it. It just felt so, um, so much like a commercial venture and not like anything that I was invested in. And so I ultimately canceled that book after much hemming and hawing and hearing from my agent at the time. And I want to emphasize at the time um, <laughs> that, that I would never write another book again. And literally, that was the message the whole time when I said, I just I don't want to write this book. And she kept saying, you have to write this book and then you can write what you want later. But if you cancel this book after saying no to the parenting book, you're never going to write again. And to me, writing is just like air like breathing and I thought okay I'll just do what I have to do and ultimately through my therapy in fact I realized wait I don't know that that's true you know I questioned that narrative I questioned that story and so again that's how we get tripped up in our stories and so I canceled it I didn't have another book that I wanted to write and then it was months later when I just started writing one night and it was some version of this book it wasn't because I thought it was going to be a book. It was just I was writing for myself. And I started to realize this is the book that I had inside me the whole time that really does mean something. And so when I sold this book, people were not like, oh, my God, this is the big commercial book. I was just writing it because I wanted to write it. I thought I would sell like three copies of this book, but at least I would be proud of it. And maybe it would do some service in the world for the three people who read it. And now that it's a New York Times bestseller that's going to be adapted by the same team that did The Americans? Yeah. How do you feel about it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, here we are nine months out on the New York Times list and, you know, we've got this TV series. And I think that the reason that this book did so well is because I didn't think a lot of people were going to read it. So in terms of my story, I just let it rip. You know, I wasn't I wasn't editing myself. Um, I was just being really vulnerable and really authentic about my piece of the story. And I think that once it became clear, once sort of the sales team got a hold of it and people started saying, wow, everybody's really responding to this, I had this moment where I thought, maybe I should clean myself up a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, wow, what if like 300 people read it or 3,000 people read it? Um, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, how many people were actually going to read it. Um, and I thought, I don't know how I feel about putting myself out there in that way. But I think that the reason that so many people have read it is because I did not clean myself up. And, and, and it was so good that I had no idea that so many people were going to read it because this is the version of the book that I want out there. And I think I would have been very hesitant to put it out there if I had known how many people, in fact, were going to read it. It's ironic that you know, narrative is the through line of your narrative. And I think as a journalist, I have some very overthought 
thoughts, if that makes sense, about narrative. I get caught in my own narratives and questioning my own narratives, but I also get stuck in my own narratives. Yeah. And I want to ask you, I don't even know if I've had to put together the question exactly, which is that were you aware of your narrative as you were writing this? And did you interrogate it? Were you like thinking about when you put, put the book together and you're like, okay, here's the story I'm telling. Did you have to ask yourself, is this a true story? I didn't because it just came out of me as as I as I experienced it. Um, and when we say, is it a true story? It's probably not a true story. None of our stories are the whole truth. I don't mean that that I'm in any way writing anything that didn't happen. I mean, again, you're getting my perspective. So there's if you look at the sessions of me and my therapist, for example, if he had written this, maybe he would have written something completely different, or maybe he would have emphasized something that I didn't emphasize, or maybe he would have added something that I left out entirely. I'm, you know, I don't know what what his version of this would be. So I think that it's true and that it's emotionally true. But is it true in the sense of every detail and every fact is told with equal weight and equal importance? Of course not. It's my subjective truth. Here at With Friends Like These, we love Grove Collaborative, the online marketplace that delivers all-natural home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your door. They carry a lot of different lines, but they have the complete Mrs. Myers line, and I have used that line forever. It is what gives my home a constant smell of lavender under everything, although... I also love their holiday scented products, and I confess I bought a bunch of those, so the house still smells like Christmas, which, you know, I'm not complaining. When that runs out, I will go back to Grove. And what I like about Grove is that you do feel like you're dealing with people. When I get a package from them, it is signed by someone with a name, with a marker, like someone put that package together for me. What you may not know about Grove is that it's also a great place to visit to reduce your dependence on single-use plastics. The Mrs. Myers line, for instance, does have concentrated versions of things, and my lavender concentrate cleanser has lasted me about five years now. <laughs> and if you want to get started doing sustainable swaps, they have a sustainable swap set that is the best and easiest way to get started reducing plastics in your home. It has bamboo straws, reusable and washable sandwich bags, a refillable hand soap dispenser, gel hand soap for that dispenser, and a walnut scrubber sponge set. Now, for a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co, that's grove.co slash friends, you get that free five-piece set from Grove so you can easily swap out single-use plastics. Plus, you'll get that free shipping and a free 60-day VIP trial. Go to grove.co slash friends to get this exclusive sustainable swaps offer. We're back. One of the fascinating stories that you tell from medical school has to do with the process of dissecting cadavers in medical school. Mm -hmm. uh, you had a team that did it. Well, I, now I'm blanking on the name for your... It was Harold and Maud, right? It was Harold and Maud, yeah. And one of the stories you tell about that is that um, medical students have kind of rituals around cadavers. Rituals is the wrong word. Um they are very aware of the gift that has been given to them to be able to work on a cadaver, that there is a real person behind it. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very interesting because um, you don't know how you're going to feel before you walk into that room. 
And I think that my medical school and most medical schools do this. They really make sure that we as students understand the gift of somebody donating their body um, to for us to learn on. And I think that in a lot of, you know, medical school is really hard and it, it requires a lot of a lot of sacrifice. And I think that sometimes gallows humor gets into the conversation. But when you're when you're dissecting these cadavers, you have so much respect for the people on whose body you are working. Um, and so it may sound glib that we called them Harold and Maude, and there were all kinds of incidents that happened in the room that I write about, um, particularly when dissecting the genitals. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the women handled that so much better than the men did. I'm quite sure. But, but I think that also um, we go through a transformation when we do that. I think it really takes you from student to this idea that you are going to be responsible for people's lives. And um, there's so much growth that happens in the process of of working on these people. And and we did. We had this ceremony at the end where we we thanked them. We we wrote poems. We wrote letters. Um, it was a very emotional time working on these cadavers. One of the things you observe about that process is that actually it's the medical students themselves that have really become vulnerable in performing all these dissections in coming to know another body. That's true. I think that medical students feel like, you know, you have to be really hard driving and you can't let your emotions get in the way. And just like as a therapist, my emotions are one of my most valuable tools. I think as a as a physician, you need to access your emotions and you need to know how to manage them and deal with them and kind of stuffing them down and pretending that they're not there is not going to serve you well as a physician. Can you give an example of how that uh, using your emotions works, that what's happening sort of on the other side of the therapist's usually very pleasant expression, I would say. I think that's part of, I don't know, that my therapists have always been the interested expression and uh, that's it. That's it. I would say <laughs> interested and pleasant are the two main expressions that I've experienced with the therapist. But there's a lot going on, right, inside. Yeah, there is. I should say, by the way, that I sort of have resting bitch face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so do you have to work on that? So so I always worry that my patients are going to think that I, I am feeling something that I'm not. Um, but I don't plaster a smile on my face in the room. That's my face is my face. So we're having all kinds of feelings um, in response to people, just like we all do out in the world. And there might be somebody like John in the book. Um, he's he's a very abrasive person. When I first meet him, he is, um, you know, insulting, unlikable, has narcissistic traits. And, and he becomes someone that I come to have genuine, deep affection for, as I think the readers of the book do, as we get to learn more about him. But in the beginning, he might be bringing up all kinds of feelings in me, and that's called countertransference is the word for it. Um, and I have to deal with my countertransference. So I have to make sure that what I'm feeling is not going to be projected back onto him. Sometimes a patient will come in and they're like wearing a sign on their forehead that says, I remind you of your mother, you know, like, and, and you have to say, am I the best person to treat? this patient. Um, and so we have consultation groups and we talk about our cases. And sometimes if we're 
feeling some kind of countertransference, we talk through it there to make sure it's not interfering with the work. And we go to our own therapy to make sure that it's not interfering with the work. So I think to pretend that we're just these blank slates that people are coming into, you know, we're not a brick wall. We're, we're real life human beings with our own histories, our own vulnerabilities, our own um, ways of, of reacting to things, our own triggers. And that's real. I wonder if you could give a, a real specific example. I know there's, there's stuff, stuff in the book, but uh, of a time when a patient or client, do you say patient or client? I, I use either. I don't think either reflects the relationship right. that I have with these people. So interchangeably, I'll use either. <laughs> so I'm just curious if you can explain a specific you know, uh, time when a patient has raised an emotion with you and you have needed to use that. Sure. Um, so I see a lot of couples in my practice and uh, I was seeing a couple where the the woman in the couple, and it was a, a heterosexual couple, the woman in the couple um, was very, very difficult to deal with. And there were lots of ways that she reminded me of difficult people in my family. And I, the husband, um, you know, I was adorable. <laughs> and um and I had to really watch out. Now he was now he had his faults and he had a role in this too, but I had to really make sure that that I could not tilt the the therapy in his direction. That that she was going to be heard and listened to and taken as seriously as he was. And also that I could find I needed to find a way to like her. I needed to find something likable about her, and I needed to hold on to that as much as I could. Because you can't really do therapy if you can't find something likable about the person. And that doesn't mean you want to be friends with that person or that's a person that you would have like a, a nice three-hour dinner with. It means that you can find something about them that that you connect with. And so I had to sort of look at look at the parts of me that mirrored the parts of her so that I could understand her better and and advocate for her in a certain way and get her to be heard by her partner in a way that, that he couldn't. And I think that most people in the world can't because she was very difficult. So, um, so that was a, a time when I used my own feelings of first of, oh, I'm different from you. And I had to turn them around to, how am I the same as you? And that's when I could really do good work with that couple. I kind of want to go to the other end of the spectrum, which maybe it's still a reaction, but about patients being boring. Like there's patients sparking reactions and then maybe there are patients that don't spark anything. Does that happen? Yes. And then I always wonder, what are they not talking about that we need to be talking about? So usually a boring patient is someone who wants to keep you at bay. They're kind of like, look over here, look over here, look over here at all these different stories. And I'm trying to follow the thread of what they're saying. And I'm wondering in my head, why are they telling me this? What are they trying to get across to me by telling me this story? Are they trying to avoid talking about something else? Is there something about this story that has deeper resonance that I'm missing? Um, and often what happens is it's one of those two things, and we have to figure out what it is. I won't let somebody be boring for a long time because 
then they're just wasting their time coming to me. So if they're boring in the beginning, okay, because a lot of people wear a mask in the beginning, but if it gets to be several weeks in and we're still kind of, it's feeling boring and I'm, I'm literally feeling like, oh, I want to close my eyes or um, I'm, my mind starts drifting to something else, um, I know that something else needs to be happening in the room. So I use that to figure out, well, what, what's going on here? The boring people tend to be the people who won't show you who they are. And once people do, I've never been bored. I have not once felt bored by a patient who actually said, this is who I am. What are the things you'd really like people to learn about therapy from this book? Like, what do you think are the misconceptions that you hope that this book busts open? Well, I think there are so many misconceptions about therapy. Partly, I hope in our television show, we will, um, you know, demystify a lot of the <laughs> the mystery behind what therapy is. A lot of people think that you go to therapy and you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you're never going to leave. And that's what therapy is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's just not what it is. Or they think there are going to be these great moments you come in and you're going to have this huge aha moment and your whole life is going to open up. Um, Generally, that's not what happens. Generally, it's a lot of planting of seeds so that um, they add, you know, eventually something blossoms. And, And I say eventually, I don't mean you're there for life. It can happen within a few months. It can happen within a year where significant changes happen in people's lives. So I hope that what people see is what therapy is and also what it isn't. And I think what therapy really is, it's it's um, almost like getting a second opinion on your life from someone who can see things that you can't, who can hold up a mirror to you and say, here are your blind spots. Here are the things that you haven't been willing or able to see. Here's some patterns that I'm noticing. Here's why you keep getting into the same situation over and over with different people. And, and that's so useful to people because when they leave, they can navigate their lives much more smoothly, even though they're still going to hit places of struggle because we all do. That's something that comes up in the book, this idea that we hit the same problems over and over again. Right. There's a reason for that, basically. Well, there is. And, and you know, I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. We say to them, yeah, that guy was a loser, even though we know that you always go through your, your boyfriend's phones and they break up with you, right? <laughs> um, you know, or yeah, you should have gotten that promotion, even though we know that you don't know how to really get along with your colleagues or you don't really put in the work. And wise compassion is when we say, hey, here's this pattern, here's this thing that I've noticed you've done the last three times, five times, ten times um, that keeps tripping you up. So I think that when people are able to not only see what their pattern is, but then change it, and that's the hard part. I think people really like to see their patterns. They like to say, oh, yeah, I do that. We all love that, right? We always say insight is the booby prize of therapy. Well, <laughs> well we don't. Okay, so here's the difference. If I said to you, here's what you do, most people say, no, I don't do that. That's not me. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, they get very right. defensive because there's so much shame around the fact that we do this, even though it's so common. We all do stuff like this. But I think that we feel so much shame around it that we're highly defended around it. So if someone calls us out on that, we feel criticized. We feel blamed. We feel put down. We feel judged. 
But if you read somebody else's story, which is what I think this book is doing for people, people are seeing their selves in the stories of people who look nothing like them. So they're saying, oh, yeah, I kind of do that sometimes when they're reading a story about someone who seems completely different from them. That helps you to see something that you're doing. It's very non-threatening to be able to notice your pattern when maybe you're coming in kind of through a side door. Speaking of patients and people that do or don't look like me or you, you discuss in the book, you know, not it's not like a huge part of it, but it comes up the idea that the medical profession has treated women, it's marginalized them and kind of treated their concerns differently than men. Yeah, Um I experienced that as I was trying to figure out why I was having all of these unusual medical symptoms. And, um, you know, I I think that what happens is there's this idea, and I write about sort of the wandering uterus and, and the history of, of hysterical women and not being believed that what we're experiencing is real. So I, I think that's a huge thing. And I, I think that that even can happen in the therapy realm, where sometimes... Uh, you know, I've had people come to me who have had that experience with other therapists. And it's I, and I think that's mainly with older therapists. Um, I think that the current generation of therapists is very aware of, um, you know, some of this, some of these unconscious, some of the unconscious bias that exists, even in people who would never want to do that. You know, who, who, would, who would think of themselves as somebody who would never have that kind of unconscious bias. People still do. To be honest, that's something that occurred to me when you were talking about the couple and the woman that you didn't like. Right, right. <laughs> and, 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 and that's something that I had to really think about, right? Because there's that idea of, oh, she's crazy. Oh, she's difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, or the, the unconscious bias in the other direction is, oh, he's a narcissist, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, you know, oh, his, you know, it doesn't matter because I, I think that there will be people who would uh, do the opposite where they might see a guy and say, oh, you're you're part of the patriarchy, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of what their concerns are and what they're complaining about. Or they could force on them, not force on them, but see in them just the, t- you know, typical, typical, stereotypical male behavior patterns and assumptions, right? Like not necessarily like, oh, you're part of the patriarchy, but more like, well, you're a guy. Of course, you're going to feel X. Or of course, you're going to act you know, why? Right. Rather than really hearing the story. It's just a place of stereotypes, right? Right. Well, here's something interesting, though. Once you get to know these men, um, their concerns are so similar to the concerns that I hear from women. And in fact, when men come in, they'll often say to me, I've never told anyone this before. And then what they tell me feels so mild to me, like, like, as a woman, that would be something I would I, I could see telling that to someone. Um, and I feel so much compassion for these men because I feel like, wow, there was no one in the world that they could be that vulnerable with. They even even if they have a really close friend or they have a really they have a really good relationship with their spouse, it's like there's no one they could tell that to. And so that speaks to our culture and what we think about men and vulnerability, that there's so much shame for them around being at all vulnerable. And I think for for women, they'll come in and they'll say, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, and my best friend, right? So they have like one to three people that they could have told this to. And men don't have one to three people. So I think that 
it's almost like as therapists, we have to um, make sure that their partners aren't shutting them down. So I have noticed that, again, in, in let's say, a heterosexual couple, that um, that a guy will be very vulnerable and he'll start crying and the woman will be really uncomfortable that he is broken down and is crying. And she had asked for that. She had said, I want you to open up to me. I want you to be vulnerable with me. And then he is, and she's kind of frozen and doesn't know what to do with it. So I think there's a lot in our culture that that is dealt with in the therapy room in a way that outside the therapy room, if they had had that conversation, I don't know that it would have gone as well. We're talking about unconscious bias. I think it's probably incumbent on me, at least, to say that we haven't specified race when we're talking about men and women. Yes. And probably a lot of people are assuming whiteness because that's what we do as a culture um, whenever we don't specify race. Like, we're talking about white men and white women. But race is really important in this equation, too, right? Oh, very much so. And there are times when people will come in and they will say, Nobody in my family, nobody in my community can know that I am here because you just don't talk about personal things with a stranger. You don't talk about them outside of your community. That just you can't do that. So um, I've seen that in the African-American community, for example. Um, I've also seen um, I, I had a young woman who was uh, who was Asian, who came to me and she said, my parents cannot know that I am here. They would commit suicide if they knew that I was here. Be- and they and she was coming because of the pressure that they had put on her. And she was suicidal at times because of that. And so you have to take into consideration the context in which they are coming to you. And that that will um, that will inform how you can help them. Because you have to work within the context that they're there. And you have to know your own context, too, right? I'm sort of curious about the monitoring of your own unconscious bias. Like, when talking about feeling, I I don't know if that's something that you think about. But it's something that when I'm interviewing people, people that are different than me, I know that it's something that I have to kind of force myself to look at. Like, am I making assumptions about this person? Am I asking questions of this person that I would or wouldn't ask of another kind of person? I think about that all the time. And I think about that, too, in the context of when somebody is trying to make a big life decision. Um, Maybe to me, it's very clear what I would do in that situation, given my given that I am a Jewish white woman. Right. Mm -hmm. But. They some that might not be the right answer for them. And and I think that that's true no matter what, even if I were treating another white Jewish woman who was my age and had whatever (laughs) history I have, it's still not potentially the right decision for her. Right. So I don't tell people what to do in any way, shape or form. I help them to figure out what they want to do. But I think that when you're talking about the problem, you have to make sure that you are looking at it from the entire holistically from their point of view and not just the content of what we're talking about, but everything involved in what happens when they walk outside of your room. I think it would be unfortunate if we ended our conversation without talking about ending therapy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think I've talked to some people who think it's somewhat controversial or problematic that you ended your therapy. Like you write a book about therapy and then you ended your therapy. I think you're pretty candid about actually, like to me, you tell me if I'm wrong, it felt like very deliberate pause. 
Right, right. So, so I still go to therapy. Oh, okay. Well, then never mind. <laughs> but I think that yes, that was an ending um, in the in the book. That is an ending as it happened, mm-hmm. and uh, people don't realize that when you end therapy, it's not like okay, now we're ending. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it, you've had this relationship with a person. So sometimes people are afraid when they feel like maybe they're done with therapy. They're afraid to bring it up to their therapist. And usually your therapist will notice that things are done, meaning there's a lot of chit chat going on in the room. And it's kind of like, well, are we done? Or is there something else that we haven't gotten to yet? And often it's we're done. So, um, you know, the therapist will bring that up. But sometimes people feel like, well, I don't know how to tell the therapist that I'm breaking up with him or her, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. And so they just, you know, oh, I've been really busy or I'm traveling a lot. And then, oh, you know, and they kind of write you an email and say, you know, I'm going to have to just take a break. They can't just say even that that I'm done. They'll say, you know, I need to take a break right now. Um, sometimes people will just ghost you, mm-hmm. which is really odd when you've had this, you know, very rich experience with them over time. Um, And so I think that I hope what people see in the book is what these goodbyes actually look like and how much they can help people to move forward once they leave. It's not just important for the therapist. It's it's mostly important for the patient to have a certain kind of goodbye and um, kind of a way of saying, okay, and now you're going out into the world and we're going to end our relationship. And maybe I will see you again one day, but maybe I won't. Well, I can't think of a better way to say goodbye right now. I mean, I'm not ending our relationship, Lori. Okay. Okay. Just just <laughs> making sure that I could come back to you sometime and we can have another conversation. In fact, I would love it if you would. So would I. After all of that, you might be interested in finding a therapist. There are tons of resources available, though first, I do want to say that if you are in immediate crisis and you feel you may harm yourself, call 911 or the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. If you can't tell if you're in immediate crisis, if you can't tell if what you're feeling is an emergency, I would suggest that if it feels like an emergency to you, it is an emergency. And you might want to text HOME, H-O-M-E, to the crisis text line at 741-741, and they can figure out how to connect you to a service that will best serve you. If you have medical insurance, lucky you. Insurance companies are required to cover mental health services. Thanks, Obama. And you can start there. If you do not have insurance, you can call the National Alliance for Mental Illness at 1-800-950-NAMI. They keep tabs on free and low-cost options that might be available. And on a local level, you should be able to call 211 to get connected to clinics and support groups in your area. I know that's a lot of information. You can Google all of this, but I wanted you to know that it's there. And... Wherever you are in this process, congratulations. You are taking care of yourself. <laughs>